It's so cliche to say, but I am a living example of the power of just having great relationships. I surrounded myself early on in sobriety with people that were actually doing the work rather than just talking about doing the work. Welcome back to the show. Today, my guest is Michael Casual. Michael is the president of the nutrition company Working Against Gravity and co-founder of the online fitness company Brute Strength. Michael also started a project called Soul Searching Adventures where he takes men on epic outdoor trips that are part of a survival part vision quest. Michael is a two-times CrossFit Games Team World Champion and his wife, Adi, was on the podcast just last month. I have been following Michael and all of his work for quite a few years. He ran the Brute Strength podcast, which became the Michael Kaju podcast, and he had so many amazing guests on, and honestly, it was a huge motivator for myself to want to start a podcast because I got to see some insight into somebody that came from a strength background but just was able to have so many amazing conversations with so many cool people that I felt the open-ended aspect of his podcast really allowed him to shine his light on a lot of the topics that he wanted to inside and outside of the gym. Uh, Michael and I dive into everything from sports, his previous experience in CrossFit, his relationship to his wife, Adi, and how intentional he is about that, and how that has transitioned him into being very intentional as a father. Michael is a great role model for anybody looking to live their life with greater intention. Enjoy the podcast. Hey everyone, real quick before we dive into the episode, you probably heard about this podcast directly from someone else or saw it shared on social media. We can only grow, spread our message further, and keep bringing in awesome and amazing guests with your help. If you could take five seconds and hop on whatever podcast platform you're using and leave us a review, it would mean the world to us. On to the show. Kaju, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, dude. Excited dude, this is here. kind of like, yeah, this is like a dream come true for me, man. I've been like listening to your content for probably the better part of the last five to six years or so. How long have you had the podcast? About that long. I don't know exactly, but I stopped doing it about six about six months ago where I, put, I pushed pause on it. But yeah, I was doing an episode a week for about six years. Wow. Yeah, I'm sure uh, you've gotten to talk to so many amazing people throughout that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of that was the impetus for starting the show, and certainly the most value I got out of doing it was just getting access to people that I had no business talking to outside of that. And yeah, I had a lot of great conversations, man. It's so true. You know, I had so many people ask me off the right out of the gate, like, how do you want to monetize this? And I was like, well, to be quite honest with you, until I get to like episode 300, I have no interest in even thinking about that. You know, if it pops up in the meantime, I'll, uh, I'll consider it. But for right now, this is like so much just my, my selfish desire to get to talk to so many amazing people and build a network. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I always genuinely appreciated about your podcast was 
your willingness to be vulnerable with the audience, you know, and, and kind of share a bit about your story. And I think that really helped you connect with the listeners, um, but also your guests in ways that were unique and special. You know, um, you came from a place where you fought and battled some drug addictions throughout high school and then went through rehab at an early age. And I imagine this really pinballed your life in one direction or another, like how, you know, looking back on it, how would you say those experiences kind of led you to where you are today? One of my mentors, Philip McKernan has this line. He says, our greatest gifts lie next to our deepest wounds. And when I think back on my time in rehab one of the things that I lacked was empathy. I lacked it in such a, such a big way that it caused me to steal from everyone in my life, to cheat on every girlfriend that I had, to lie to everyone in my life because I couldn't feel their emotions. I couldn't like put myself in, the, in their shoes. And a big part of that was because I was so disconnected from my emotions, my own emotions because of the drugs I was taking. And the reason I bring that up is I got to see that in rehab. I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you the, the actual story. Uh, this, this really came to a head for me in a group therapy session one day when a guy that I was there with, we, we sort essentially the whole group was focused on this one guy and I'll call him uh, Alex. And Alex's dad had committed suicide when he was 13, 14, and his dad was his hero. And he, he told us these stories of them going to ball games together and riding in his convertible in upstate New York. And he was just like his best friend. And in that group, he was telling us how much he missed his father, how angry he was at him. He told us the literal story of him walking in and seeing his dad lying there dead. He had shot himself. And Brandon was at, he, he just started trembling. I had, and I had never seen someone cry that hard. And I looked around the group and everyone, every single person, therapist and client was also trembling and just right there with them. Like they could feel what he was feeling. And at the end of group, once it kind of wrapped up, and we were just reflecting and processing what had happened, someone called me out and they said, you know, I noticed that everyone in the group was, was crying and like really feeling what Brandon was going through, except for you. And this was the first time that I had been told that I struggled with empathy. And it was a very, very painful realization because I had always thought of myself as a good person, despite, you know, a lot of my mistakes and um, defects of character as a teenager, I'd always thought of myself as a good person and someone that cared for people. And that was a good friend. <clears throat> and this was completely controversial to that in a really big way. You know, like this was a very important moment for Brandon and he was one of my closest friends there. And so that was very painful. Fast forward to today, that was 15 years ago. Today, one of the things that I'm proudest of in my life is my ability to connect with people. And one of the ways that I do that is by sharing my own shit and by also 
really just doing my best to feel what they're going through and to understand what they're going through. And one of the things that people reflect to me most often uh, regarding like what I'm best at is just that. And so it took that pain and um, that this thing that I struggled with became one of my greatest gifts in my life. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I wanted to ask like how much of that do you think was something that was unique to you versus how much do you think uh, being around others that were struggling from drug addictions played a role as well? Because I, I know that part of what happens through drug addiction is that you kind of desensitize your empathy centers. Hmm. Um, so do you think this was something that you identified was, was more in line with just yourself and a personal issue you had to work through? Or do you think that there was uh, a level of this throughout everyone else that you were talking to? Yeah, I've never thought about it. I would say probably both. I think the social component for sure. You know, I was just, first I grew up in Louisiana, which is kind of the epitome of, you know, grown men don't cry or men don't, don't cry or show emotions other than maybe anger or stoicism. And then the crew that I was hanging around were like just too fucking cool for school. Like everything, we were just too cool for everything. And so that was a, that was a component. And then there's also the fact that I was, I've just always been a very sensitive person. And I imagine I developed mechanisms to just insulate myself from feeling certain things because I would feel them so intensely. And I just had to undo a lot of that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, obviously it, it led you in the right direction, but, um, you know, I know that, you know, that you've, you're far removed from high school at this point. So, you know, there's clearly, you didn't flip a switch and this all happened overnight. What are some of, you know, the battles along the way, what were some of the obstacles that you had to overcome in order to be able to get to the place where you are, you are today, where you feel, um, like you can be empathetic towards everyone in your life and that you're actually considering that a strong suit now. Well, the first step was for me to remove drugs and alcohol completely for some period of time. One thing that I learned is that drugs and alcohol for addicts are not the problem. They're a solution, right? And they're a, a they're kind of the, the most cutting edge strategy for us to cope with something deeper that's going on. And I realized that I could never deal with the, the deeper stuff if I was continuing to use. And so... I intended to just stay sober for the rest of my life when I, you know, when I got out of treatment and I had a really bad relapse six months after, which came about for a couple of reasons. Number one is I, it was the first time in my life. I didn't have any goal to strive for. I wasn't involved in any sports. I had just run the Salt Lake city marathon and I was so sick of running so I didn't, I didn't want to run anymore. I had no, just, I had no direction in my life. I was you know, I wasn't very excited by school and the only other thing I was doing is going to AA meetings. So that was a factor. And I also became very isolated and, and kind of lonely and I relapsed hard and the relapse I chalk up to be a really big gift because what was really drilled into my mind was that the people that I had seen in AA meetings or just in life in general that were able to stay sober for a long period of time and more importantly, live a life that seemed compelling to me, like a 
they were truly happy and fulfilled. They practiced the principles in all of their affairs, as they say in Alcoholics Anonymous. So the 12 steps are you go through all the steps. And then the last step is we practice these principles in all of our affairs. When people relapse, it's because they stop living in a way where they're, they're living a principled life. And mm-hmm. I saw that that had happened to me and that really stuck with me. And the lesson was I need to put my mental health before everything. I can't hold on to resentments. I have to have clear, clean relationships I just have to take care of myself and I have to, um, you know, live cleanly. And so that was a really big, that was a really big moment for me because ever since then I've been obsessed with personal growth and just continuing to, I would say if there's like a one key to it or like a a central point to what I've been focusing on, it's just to be trying to become more self-aware, more aware of my own shit, whether that be judgments uh, of myself or others, um, different emotions that are getting in my way, different limiting beliefs. I've just been obsessed with that. So that, that's been a really big thing. Another big factor, and this is a factor that was important for me getting sober. It was important for me getting into CrossFit and going on to win the CrossFit games. It's been the biggest factor in my business success, and that's just relationships. It's so cliche to say, but I am a living example of the power of just having great relationships. I surrounded myself early on in sobriety with people that were actually doing the work rather than just talking about doing the work. And then when I got into CrossFit, same thing, I surrounded myself with people that were actually willing to sacrifice some things in their life to strive for something a little abnormal. And specifically what I mean by that is we were the, I think we were the first team to have all of the individuals training like we were going to the CrossFit games, like we were individual CrossFit games athletes. And then in business, just surrounding myself with, with big thinkers, out of the box thinkers, um, and people that do their work with integrity. I love that. Well, I definitely want to get into the CrossFit side of things because there's so much good stuff for us to talk about there. But one thing I do want to talk about before we get into that is, you know, I don't like to say that there's a hierarchical, you know, structure uh, to empathy, but I would say you've reached pretty much the pinnacle of it because at some point you allowed homeless people to live with you in order to be able to help them get off their own drug addictions. Am I getting this right? Yeah, man. Probably. How did that come about? Well, I was at an AA meeting with my then best friend, Doug, and we met a guy that was our age. I think he was 18 years old and he was currently addicted to heroin and he just seemed so much worse off than either of us had ever been. And he was this sweet kid. Um, His name was Atrail and my buddy, Doug, he just got into a conversation with him and he felt, he felt bad for him and he wanted to help him out. But <laughs> I hadn't thought about this in so long. He didn't want him to stay with him, but he wanted him to stay with me. And so he said, Hey, can he stay with you for a while? And I was like, absolutely. And so he stayed with us. Um, I was living in Salt Lake city at the time and he stayed with us on the couch, me and two roommates for 
months. And at some point he, he slept in my bed with me because I, I don't know, <laughs> like maybe I felt bad that he was sleeping on the couch or something, but I just felt so comfortable with him and he just became a close friend and he slept in my bed with me for a while. And one night, one afternoon or night or over the course of a few days, he just started doing some things that and saying some things that were inconsistent with each other and, and doing some things that let us know he was probably using again and he, he wasn't being honest about it. So we kicked him out. And we, we did this with another four or five guys. And um, yeah, a couple of them were like my best friends. And this is a, a part of, I think, one of the most important lessons I've learned in life, which is a great way to get through your own suffering or get through painful experiences is to just help others. Because a lot of what causes our suffering is that we're so focused on this that it makes it hard to get perspective and see how little our problems actually are. And so by helping people that were, that genuinely had it so much worse off than I did, it, it gave me some purpose in life when I didn't feel like I had much else and it put my, my issues into a greater perspective. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. And I know you, you know, you acknowledge the fact that some of these people were far worse off than you were at any point. Um, but much in the same, like you are in the best position to serve the, the person you were five or 10 years ago. And I'm sure that you felt like you were kind of providing the rungs to the ladder for these people to be able to climb faster than you were able to, um, you know, and that's, that's a very admirable, admirable thing. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Yeah, no doubt. Um, well, getting into the CrossFit side. So, you know, you have this transition, you fall in love with training, you know, do you think that was a, a major contributor towards you continuing on this, this right path without a doubt man yeah finding crossfit when i did finding it at all is one of the mo yeah most important things that has ever happened to me uh you know i i already mentioned relationships one, one thing that i started to experience after being in aa for a number of years is that a lot of the people that had been sober for a very long time, I didn't really want their life. They just, they still seemed quite down and <clears throat> like they weren't thriving. They were still just trying to get by and survive, which I get. And if that's, if that's the best they can do, that's the best they can do. And that's great. But I didn't feel inspired by their life. I met a lot of people in my CrossFit community whose lives inspired me, you know, people that just simply had a growth mindset about everything. Like they just thought they could get better at just about anything. And that showed me that more was possible for me in my life. And then you mix in the, the fact that CrossFit's like a smorgasbord of things you can get better at. I was just like a kid in a candy store. And I think I had some natural like talent in it. And so I, I, you know, I, I was able to excel sort of quickly and all of those factors just, just hooked me. <laughs> yeah. I think it was Jordan Peterson that said, if you want to quit drinking, you have to find something that you find as fun as drinking, you know, mm. and that's a, it's a silly way of putting it, but it's true. And I mm -hmm. think that this is why a lot of times, 
uh, whether it be powerlifting, weightlifting, CrossFit, you know, these more extreme examples of fitness are a, a really attractive outlet for people that are coming from a place of addiction and that it does consume you in all the best ways possible. Um, and you can become not addicted, but obsessed in a way with, in a positive way with something that is, uh, going to, you know, very positively impact your, your physical and mental health. Yeah. Agreed, man. There are far worse things you could obsess yourself with. No doubt. Well, so, you know, at, at, you get involved, you find out it's something that's coming very natural to you. What was the segue? Like, what was the ticket for you to be like, oh, wow, like I'm going to take a run at this thing to see if as a team we can go to the CrossFit games and, and make some noise. So I did a competition called Fitness Elevated in 2010 or 11, maybe. And it was put on by a guy named Tommy Hackenbrook. I don't, I don't know how long you've been in the game, but I'm about as long as you, man, yeah. 2009, he's was an OG, so. OG, one, still one of the best of all time. Yep. And so he, yeah, he was putting it on and he was competing in it. I think he had some other people program for it and I was beating him for the majority of the day. I was in first place. I think he was in second. And then all of the heavy stuff came at the end and he destroyed me. I think I ended up getting like, <laughs> like fourth. Um, but it just, it, it just kind of, um, put me on his radar. And after that event, he invited me and my training partner at my old gym. His name, this guy's name was Rob. And, uh, he invited us to join his gym to start a team. And back in these days, your CrossFit gym was like a family. And when I tell you it was a hard decision, like one of the hardest decisions up to that point of my life, you know, and we decided to, to go ahead and do it. And, um, that year we started a team. It was, it was still three guys and three girls and we, went to regionals with absolutely no expectations. I didn't even know that the the game season existed, you know, 6 months before we were competing at regionals. So we we had oh, no wow. idea what to expect. I think we ended up either winning or getting second place and <clears throat> then we went to the games and we got ninth. We we almost qualified for the final event which would have been the top 6. So we could have done a little bit better, but we did it. <laughs> we almost did better, but we did it. <laughs> and then I think that surprised Tommy, how well we did surprise Tommy a little bit. And that coincided with him just being a little tired competing individually. So we got together and we said, this year, let's try to create a super team. Let's try to create a team of people that are qualified to compete as individuals, but that want to get together to try and win the whole thing. And so I think we were also the first team to like recruit from other gyms. So we did that and we got together and this team just, we gelled so well. We had so much fun on one hand and we just pulled the best out of each other on the other hand. And, uh, we would go on to win the CrossFit games that year and the next year. That's amazing. How much time would you say you were training together? Together. So I think, I think we were doing four hours a day on average and 
together. Some, some of them I trained with probably 20 hours a week. Some of them three hours a week, maybe six hours a week, two, two, three hour sessions. Yeah. Now, you know, you and your wife, Adia both had a heavy hand in, in multiple businesses at this point. And I think a large portion of that is appreciating just the power and the value of teamwork. And I would imagine that you probably took a lot of those lessons from your experiences with your, um, you know, the competitors next to you on the CrossFit games floor. Would you say that? Yeah, you are so right, man. I always say that before joining this team, I, I really didn't know how to work hard. I was always the best. I, I always had the best conditioning on any team I played for. Like I was either even faster than all the black kids on my team, but it was just because I had better, like better lungs. I think that's what I'm genetically made for endurance, mm. but I never knew how to work hard. And part of that was I, I, I sort of excelled at everything in this small town that I was in and, and, you know, kind of thought I was the shit for a while. And then I went to a really big university and realized I'm like middle of the pack at most things. And then I had this experience of, you know, getting to learn the value of hard work and what's possible if I really apply myself. And so that's certainly translated to every other area of life, including business. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that I always think about in terms of my transformations, um, be it as an athlete or uh, especially in the business, is that my exposure to new groups of people that are a type of person that I want to become kind of in that zone of proximal development to where like they're a little bit beyond me, but it's well within reach is you just learn how incredibly efficient people are in their decisions and day-to-day tasks. Like they Mm. have their life so dialed in and it's like the more you keep moving up the ladder and you realize this, it just keeps going. Like at the top, it's just people that are learning how to leverage their time in ways that you don't currently understand. Hmm. That's really well said. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. And it's just, it's funny because it mixes well with hard work, right? You don't think of it as like efficient hard work and you think they're separate, but it's just kind of one and the same. It's like, it's like same input, more output, more input, more output, right? Mm -hmm. And you're kind of just playing that game as you continue to get better. Yeah. No one has more willpower than anyone else. People have just learned how to push their own buttons a little bit better and they've built good habits. Once you have, once something is a habit, it doesn't take willpower. It's just a part of your routine. And so people have just spent, you know, sometimes many years or decades instilling great habits so that it's just a part of their identity. It takes no extra effort or energy for them to maintain. It's more weird if they don't do the efficient or productive or, you know, artistic thing that we might see as, you know, taking a really ton of work. Yeah. I think it was James Clear that said a habit must be established before it can be improved. Mm. And I would imagine, you know, from everything I've seen, it seems as though it's establishing the habit. That's actually the most costly part because you're, you're like, you're uprooting something in your life and, and making a change that it's a concerted effort every single day because it's not something you're used to. But once you can establish that habit, I would imagine that, you know, incrementally improving it over time is rather simple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now you have, you know, you've had this 
experience through CrossFit. Um, and then something else that you and I share in common is that we both have this kind of like exercise science background as well. Um, throughout your you know experiences, you have your master's in, is it sports science? Mm-hmm. Sports performance. Yeah. Sports performance. And you were a strength coach at uh, SUU and LSU, correct? Yep. What were some of the lessons you took out of being able to work with such? We were speaking about very high efficiency people. And I would imagine that in your time working with some of the, you know, the, the higher level football and even Olympian level athletes, like you got to see some people that had totally refined their life in a way that made them as efficient as humanly possible. What were some of the things you took out of that experience? I would say the biggest lesson I learned <clears throat> is that so much of teaching or making an impact with people is about motivation. So for a long time, I was so obsessed with the technical components, the X's and O's of strength and conditioning. And I just kept getting hit in the head with these guys don't really give a shit, right? They didn't sign up to be in the weight room. They signed up to play football to throw a baseball, to run track, et cetera. And this is like a chore for a lot, like most of them. And so the first lesson was learning how to connect with people so that they actually want to be in here or act or, or want to listen to me is extremely important. And on top of that, what I learned from Tommy Moffitt, who was the strength coach at LSU for maybe 20 years uh, one of the very best in the history of that industry is it, it, it's sort of the uh, it's sort of the the saying they don't care what you know until they know how much you care they don't know how much you know <laughs> they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care yeah he spent hours with kids in his office just shooting the shit just catching up just asking them how their families are. And he went so far above and beyond what would be expected of him by the athletic department that it, it just really made a lasting impact on me. These, these kids really felt like he cared because he did. And they were willing to work so much harder because of that. Yeah. When you get into a room with a team and you realize that the kids involved are willing to run through a brick wall for their coach or their strength coach. There's just a level of intensity that you can't fabricate. You know what I mean? There's no pregame speech that a coach that is, doesn't gain the respect of his athletes can say before a game to make up for the fact that there's like cultural problems, you know, leading up to it. And I think if you can establish a, a great culture like that within a team, it gives you just such an immense competitive advantage over a, a team that doesn't have that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just drive this point home further. Um, I'm, I'm working with a guy right now. I do some one-on-one -on -one coaching for high performing men. And I said, one of the things I asked him was how could I be a hero to you? Like, how could you get the most value out of this relationship? And the biggest thing that he said was, I just want to feel like you genuinely care about me. And it just reminded me that that's, I think, one of the most essential things that we're all looking for. We want to feel cared about by people in our life, by people we admire. And when we feel cared about, when we feel like people are paying attention to us, 
we can achieve so much more and our experience of life is, uh, is just so much better. Yeah. I mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And, and as a gym owner and, and somebody that also does some mentoring with some high performance people, I, I, I 1000% agree. Um, now when I spoke with your wife, um, one of the things that we talked about was something that I took from your podcast, what, which was, I loved how much the listeners were requesting, uh, conversations around relationships. And what was so fascinating about this was that like, I felt as though that 80% of your guests or so were very like strength and conditioning, CrossFit athletes, you know, and, and you did start to sneak in more of the kind of philosophical mindset and performance side of things. But the relationship one kind of the first time that it snuck in there, I think was a curveball people weren't expecting, hmm. but it was one that obviously appealed to the audience in a really special way. Why do you think that is? Well, it's something that binds most adults together. It's like, the, you know, the, one of the most common things that people share is that they have an intimate relationship and the CrossFit industry for a while was, I don't know what the right analogy is, but like kind of like a vacuum, like it was such a, such its own community. And if enough people were talking about the same thing, it seemed like everyone in the world was talking about that thing. And so why am I bringing that up? At the time, I don't think anyone in the CrossFit industry was talking about relationships. And, mm -hmm. you know, we started talking about it. We had the, I, I think one thing that was helpful to people is just us sharing our, our actual process and like the, th the mistakes that we had made and what we learned from them rather than just trying to teach lessons. So I think that was able to, like people were able to connect to our stories a little bit more. And we've had the privilege of working with, I think the best relationship coach on the planet, Annie Lala. We've worked with her since we were together for three months and we would just share things that we learned from her. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that anyone with decent force uh, or insight can look back and realize that so much of their life experiences were shaped by the quality uh, of their relationships, be that for good or bad. So, you know, I think everybody deep down wants to have healthy relationships in their life. I know there's been research that has come out recently that is more or less demonstrated that being lonely is as dangerous or detrimental to our health as smoking, which is unbelievable, but it's also, it's, it's unbelievable, but be believable at the same time, right? Cause we've all experienced what it's like to be alone and feel alone. And we know how shitty that feeling is. Yeah. I think I've seen that too. Yeah. And I believe it. Yeah. What are some of the practical lessons that, uh, you and a D took out of, uh, your time spent with, um, your, it was a therapist, correct? That you were working with a coach. Yeah. A coach. Okay. Out, out of, out of your relationship coach, what were some of the biggest, uh, practical tips that you were, you took from that? The first thing that I remember learning from her is the distinction between the I centered person and the we centered person. She says in almost all healthy relationships, there's one person that's more communal, the we, the team, the us. And there's one person that's more agentic or I or individualistic. 
And the way that this came about for us is we had been together for about six months and I was driving and I just had this moment of clarity that I needed more space in our relationship. Before then, I had just been so obsessed with her that I wanted to spend every minute with her and she wanted to spend every minute with me as well. And it just dawned on me that I had been neglecting some friendships and some solo time. And I was just craving more solitude and space from the relationship. And so I called her up and I I told her this. And I think she was coming home from, from training in Santa Cruz at the time. And she said, I told her what I just told you. And then she said, well, this just changes everything. I don't, I mean, I don't know what to say. And she was just absolutely catastrophizing. (laughs) Like I was saying, (laughs) I want to break up with her and she's a terrible person. And so it was this, it was a really big deal for her hearing that. And so we, we talked to Annie shortly after that. And she taught, she taught us this distinction that there's usually one person on either side and that both have sacred needs. Neither are more important than the other. So the we person has a greater need for togetherness and for high quality us time. And the I person has a greater need for space and solitude from the relationship. I'm in the middle of writing an article about this right now, actually. Um, I think it's more, it's more typical that the space is demonized and thought thought to be a sign of disconnection in the relationship when really it is an essential nutrient to relationships. Uh, a, a metaphor or analogy that Annie brings up is relationships are like waves, right? Up and down or like inhales and exhales. We need exhales just as much as inhales. So that was a really important distinction. And that kind of led into something related to conflict resolution, which is that there's oftentimes someone, we have different preferences in the way that we resolve conflict. Oftentimes the we person, they want to be physically touching during conflict, or they want to just deal with it like immediately. So like closeness, they want closeness. Then there are the eye center people like myself who want space. Like if I can just leave the conversation for half an hour, I almost always come back with crystal clear clarity about what I'm really feeling, what I feel like is true in this scenario, et cetera. And so that was a a helpful distinction to learn what each other needs in conflict and how to give that to each other. And then let's see, one more, one more came to mind for me, which is the concept of being the hero. So Annie taught us a, a couple more things related to conflict resolution. Um, one is that the most important thing in conflict resolution is regulating your nervous system. So, you know, when you feel like a lot of intensity in your body and you can't think clearly maybe you feel furious with your partner and everything in your mind is going you know that bitch or that asshole and it's just really <laughs> nasty that's a sign that you're you're unregulated and 
we can regulate ourselves, like our primary regulating mechanism is our breath. And so one of our, our biggest roles in relationship is just to learn to keep ourselves more regulated so that when we're actually communicating with each other, we're clear about it. And she recommends trying to avoid talking when anytime you're above a five, if you're above a five, take some time, just breathe for a little bit, get get calm, leave the room if you have to, to do this, and then come back when you're below a five, because you're going, you're going to think more clearly. You're going to be able to hear the other person a little bit better. And, um, then she, then she taught us the, this, this concept of being the hero. So, you know, when you've been in a, do you have a partner, Derek? I do. Yeah. I have a a wife and a daughter on the way. Amazing. Oh, congrats, man. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I'm, I'm sure you've had a time where you've been in a conflict with your partner and you've been at it for a while and you just feel kind of stuck. And you, the two of you just feel so distant. You're like, how could I possibly, how, how are we ever going to get back from this? You know, And uh, that just happens in relationships sometimes. And what neither person wants to do in that scenario is lay down their sword. Both people are just like, just continually, continually ready to fight and defend themselves and to throw jabs and, and blame. And she says that the hero is the first person to lay down their, their sword and take accountability, say, I'm sorry, say, Hey honey, I'm, I'm really ready to listen to you and, and try to understand how you're feeling. So the first person to do that is the hero. And when we, when we heard that, it just dawned on us as like the best, like the best way to be competitive with each other in our relationship, like the only healthy way to compete is to be the hero in this way. And so now, you know, seven years later, after learning this, this concept, we are, when we're in this time, like as soon as we become aware or remember what the hero is, we're like, okay, can I, can I do this right now? Like, am I ready to, to be the one to bring us back? And that's been just so helpful. That's awesome. I, so I have a funny story for you. Did, did you, have you ever seen Everybody Loves Raymond? Uh, probably a long time ago. Okay. So there's an episode that actually embodies this point perfectly. So basically, uh, you know, obviously Ray and Deborah are married and they're, they come home from vacation and they leave the suitcase on landing in between the first steps and the second steps to go upstairs. And they get into this, this battle basically of who's going to take the suitcase up because both of them think that they did more as part of this vacation or depacking process as the other person. So they go on to this fight of just leaving it there. And then Raymond ends up leaving cheese in it while he goes away for work, knowing it's going to stink and cause a problem so that she has to deal with it, right? So it's, it's a really silly episode. So then he gets home because he feels bad about putting the cheese in there and they kind of make up. And then they try to be the hero, but now they're competitive over who's going to get it. So it like flips. So your story just totally reminded me of that. And it's, it it was so hilarious. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And and it is really hard, you know, when you're worked up to be the person to kind of lay the sword down is, is definitely a challenge. Um, 
I'll tell you uh, one of the ones that I took from your podcast that I still use today was actually the utilization of a one to 10 scale in terms of how something how much something means to you. Because oftentimes what is a five for one person can be a 10 for another. So like a good, for instance, is like dishes in the sink to me, maybe a five, but to my wife might be a 10. So by me knowing that that bothers her so bad, not just being like, okay, well, it doesn't bother me. So whatever. It's like understanding the threshold differences between you and your partner. I've, that was one I took out of one of the ones when Annie was on and I've always used it. Yeah, dude. So good. We're, we're going through something relevant to that right now. Actually, we just bought some land outside of Austin and the land matters way more to me. The house matters way more to her. And I've known that, but I've, I've for years, I've sort of said to myself, Oh, that's so silly that she values a house more than, than the land we live on. And it just became clear to me a couple of days ago. It's like, no, there's nothing more virtuous or anything like that, that I care more about the land than she does. And um, yeah, just understanding how much people value what they value can be a game changer in a relationship. Yeah. I mean, so much of this falls into the bucket of conflict resolution. And um, I will tell you that you know, I've had mixed experiences with conflict resolution as part of my upbringing. And it's, it's something that I've had to like put a major amount of effort into. And one of the reasons why that has very much so ramped up is because once you, you know, you get married and you have a significant other, you realize that this is for the long haul. You, you better figure this out and understand that this is a team job, not, not a you versus I sort of thing. Um, you know, you're working together. And then in addition to that, knowing and anticipating that you're going to have family, right? You're going to have kids. Uh, you know, you want to not only be able to instill that those traits into them, but you want to be able to do it by the way of them observing you and your significant other being able to handle conflict in a grown up, respectable fashion that shows them it's okay to have conflict, but it's not okay to, you know, act out of emotion, storm out of the room and not resolve it. You know, and I think mm -hmm. this is a point that's been made relatively recently, which is like, it's, you know, they used to be here 20 years ago or 10 years ago. If you get into a fight with a significant other, don't do it in front of the kids, like do it elsewhere. And now it's like, no, 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 no. Like most of the fights are, you should have in front of them, but also resolve them in the presence of your kids. How do you think kind of your view of conflict resolution and how much you focus on that has, you know, played a role in the way that you also parent? Well, so far, what we try to do is like, even with my, even with my son who can't understand what I'm saying when I explain this type or when I communicate what I'm about to say, um, I, I'm still trying to do it to practice for when he can understand. And that's to take accountability when I do something I'm not proud of. You know, if I'm too rough with him, if I speak to him, too like you know in a way that's more stern than what the moment calls for if i misunderstand him and take something from him um i would say you know regularly i'm taking accountability and apologizing for for it and i say buddy you know i'm i'm so sorry i did that either like there's no good excuse or you know i i i i misheard you and blah 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 blah, blah. so that there's not this this difference in what's expected of him and what's expected of me. 
And then also so that he sees that it's okay to do that. I remember growing up thinking or just feeling like apologizing was just the most painful thing ever. Like I'm, 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 you know, telling the other person I'm bad or um, I'm powerless or, or something. It just felt just so, so bad. And I avoided it at all cost. I want him to see that you can take accountability and apologize and it doesn't have to be this big deal. Right. And he also gets to see me genuinely being remorseful and uh, what it sounds like to truly own your shit, you know? And so when he can understand the words that I'm saying, you know, the kind of the foundation, the, the pattern of me doing that with him will be set. That's a, that's a, that's a big one. Yeah, absolutely. I, one of the things uh, Adi said on our podcast was that we need to, we need to have less concern about our kids physical well-being in the sense of like constantly helicoptering over them to make sure they're not falling or running into anything and be a bit more forgiving and understanding in their emotional development. Um, and you're going to have kids that have, you know, more emotional outbursts and are, are un unable to control their emotions from time to time. And I think, you know, that puts it on to us as parents to have that understanding and not to allow ourselves to also kind of fall into the same, you know, slippery slope along the way. Yeah, there's a great book called Hunt, Gather, Parent that talks all about that. We, we tend to overestimate our child's emotional capacities and underestimate their physical capacities. It's a great point. I mean, it's so funny, you know, with a, a daughter that's going to be here in a little, just over eight weeks, uh, you know, I've been picking people's brains throughout the podcast, you know, inside and outside of the the podcast here. So um, it's great getting a chance to talk to parents and hearing different, you know, parenting styles and, and ideas in this, this way, because, you know, you do feel like there is a large degree of, of parent shaming that comes by the way of just traditional thinking around, around kids. And it's really, really refreshing when you see people doing it a bit differently successfully. Hmm. Yeah, man, I, I would love to share one or two more things that I've learned with you uh, regarding kids. One is something I learned from Gabor Mate, who wrote um, Hold On to Your Kids and a, a probably dozens of other books, but Hold On to Your Kids is a great book. And one of the things that I learned is that we are responsible not for our kids' independence needs, we're responsible for their dependence needs. And so what I got out of that is I'm not responsible for making sure Shy goes out and takes a bunch of risks physically, emotionally, career-wise later, et cetera. I'm responsible for creating the safety for him to depend on me so that his natural creative impulse drives him to be independent. When he's safe enough, he will be independent. There's nothing that can stop that if he feels safe enough. And that it's so intuitive, but it's backwards of what most people do. You know, I think, especially as a, a more masculine person, like my natural tendency is to challenge, to always to challenge and to push. And so now, you know, knowing that anytime he wants to hold my hand or he wants me to pick him up, 
anytime I'm like aware of that, that concept, I just pick him up. And I, and, and in the past I may have thought like, oh, he's being overly needy. I don't want to coddle him, et cetera. But what I believe is that if I, if I say yes to his request for long enough, um, he's just naturally going to be more independent. And if I refuse and I deny him the physical touch and the, and the safety that he's asking for, he may become needier and he may, um, yeah, he may be less, become less independent. Yeah. You know, I think a a good example of this is the difference between the parents that offer their kids all the resources and comfort necessary to try anything that they wish to try in the world versus the kids that force uh, or the parents that force their kids to play sports. Mm. Like you can always tell on the team, the kids that don't actually want to be there, the parents are just going, no, 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 get out of your comfort zone. You need to do this because I did this when I was growing up and you can see the difference, right? In the confidence of the kids, the willingness to participate, like it's just, it, it's palpable. It's very mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. And then the the other one is something that I certainly have not mastered. It, it's something like very alive for us right now, which is it's something like how how can I respect him more? And now, now we have a daughter as well. Like how can I respect their decisions more? And what I mean by that is like on one hand. I have to keep him physically safe. I can't let him, um, you know, cause himself serious damage to his body. I can't let him break something, I don't know, big in our house or something like that. But how can I respect his desire for autonomy within those constraints, right? Within a way, within the boundaries of like keeping him physically safe and not breaking really expensive things. Um, which is kind of a radical take because most people, most parents view, they're just much more controlling. And I've just noticed so much, such a tendency in me to want to control him. And a lot of it is just based on my preferences for how I want to spend time or what I want to do rather than me really paying attention to him and what he desires and what he wants. One thing that a D and I are practicing only in the past two weeks is just trying to say yes to everything with obviously within reason, but it's like, how, how can we say yes to as much as possible to this little guy? And, um, so far it's been working extremely well. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I definitely look up to both of you as parents, you know, having followed you for a long time. I know that this is something, this is an area of your life that you've heavily curated. Um, and while you may just still be getting started, you know, in, in, to, to some people in terms of like the age of your kids and experience in this, I know that it's something that you, you think about a lot. So it's awesome to see from the outside looking in. Thank you, man. Yeah. We certainly do spend a lot of time working on this. Um, now two years ago you founded soul searching adventures. Um, D was telling me about this and I was like, this sounds like something right up my alley. (laughs) So can you tell the audience, uh, what your mission is with this? Yeah. So my first rehab experience was a wilderness therapy program and I lived in Southern Utah for nine weeks. I lived out of a tent. We hiked all day, learned wilderness survival skills, and learned how to express our emotions and give and receive feedback. And we had a ton of therapy. 
And that experience and my whole recovery experience instilled in me um, a deep love for psychology, for understanding my own mind and really noticing how I could make these small tweaks to my beliefs and it would lead to a completely different experience of, in my life. And, and, you know, essentially like just a lot more inner peace and contentment. And after a while of, of doing this, I felt kind of an insatiable desire to share it with others. Like I, I felt like I had received so much that I just have to share it with others. And so ever since my rehab experience, I've been trying to find a way an authentic way to help people with these types of things. And these types of things are how to find more purpose in your career and in your work, um, how to build better relationships with your intimate partners, your, your family and yourself. Uh, and so like how to find inner peace in yourself and just how to have more fun and adventure. And so I started in college thinking I was going to be a social worker, then a psychologist. I ended up getting an opportunity to become a coach, which is what we talked about a little, little while ago. I followed that. Um, once I started in the business path, I was always tinkering with how to introduce personal development concepts to all of my clients. And I, I created some like small courses and modules for people uh, along the way. I, I created a personal development program for our staff at WAG, and I took a bunch of people through that. I tried remote coaching and at the time, none of it felt very fun to me. None of it felt again, like authentic to me. And a couple of years ago, I was doing a leadership course and a guy asked me, um, what's the most adventurous thing you could imagine yourself creating in your career? And this idea, soul searching adventures just flowed out of me. And what I'm doing is I'm taking men on epic outdoor trips and we're doing deep introspective work. And we're doing that in the areas of career, your relationship with yourself and your relationship with others. And I give people a bunch of exercises and prompts essentially to explore all of those areas that I talked about before, all of those goals that I talked about before, achieving better relationships, more purpose, et cetera. And then I'm there to help people go deeper and to challenge them and to, and to push. I think that's amazing because, you know, I, I am part of a number of different mentorships and have spent time traveling, um, you know, with people to kind of, I always say like you bend your reality when mm -hmm. you get to spend time around people that are very growth mindset, like, and, and are willing to kind of exceed their own boundaries as part of, you know, some group activities. And I think that while this is a unique space, that's not being utilized. I think it's one you're going to find a lot of success with. I mean, I, the minute that D told me about it, I was like, yeah, I'm going to be hitting Michael up about this. This sounds really effing awesome. Amazing, man. Yeah. It's, yeah. uh, it's been, it's been the most yeah, fulfilling and exciting thing in my career so far. And the thing uh, to which people have been the most excited about. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, the, the, I always say like the graph that matters the most is the one that, you know, on one side is the amount of value you can provide. And on the other side is what lights you up. And mm -hmm. I think that this, this fit that perfectly. And I would imagine this is why you probably also care more about the yard than the house. Correct. <laughs> like, They're do connected. you do this? 
they're connected. Yeah, no, we don't do th- we don't do them here. Actually, we have something called couples camp on our land. Oh, that's what it was. That's what it was. Yeah, I think Adi was telling. They're me both that. connected in that I've just felt drawn to spending the majority of my life outside, and uh, so yeah, both of those are big examples of doing that. I love it. Well, hey, uh, big compliment to you is. I always knew that I wanted to start a podcast. Conversation is is my my favorite medium to be able to connect with other people and be able to spread, uh, you know, positive messages. And one of the things that really helped me with yours was that I got to see somebody who was willing to start basically like a, a a podcast for the purpose of reaching an audience in the strength and conditioning space, but the willingness to have such an array of so many talented guests that that exceeded those boundaries and were and you were able to connect with those people in such a fun. And, and special way and kind of pull information out of them that was still relative to someone like myself as a listener hopping on because I wanted to figure out how to increase my back squat, you know? So that gave me the confidence to then go and want to do that myself. So very much appreciate everything you've done as part of the podcast, even though I know you're, you know, you're stepping away from that to focus on some other things that are really lighting you up in the moment. Oh man, thank you for saying that, dude. And just as a reflection for you, you're doing the same exact thing. So I hope it's, I hope it's been fulfilling for you, my man. It's been a blast. Um, well, hey, tell the audience where they can learn about more about you and what you do. Yeah, if you're interested in the trips that I was talking about, you can go to soulsearchingadventures.com or check out my Substack, my email newsletter at mcaz.substack.com. I, I put out a, a newsletter every couple of weeks and that's the best way to keep up with anything that I'm, I'm doing. Awesome. Well, hey, Michael, thanks so much for jumping on. Thank you, Derek. If you feel like the gym is one big, confusing, and intimidating playground, a personalized coach from Hardbat Athletics can work with you remotely to help match your goals to an actionable plan. You'll get workout videos and descriptions and have access to coaching calls to make adjustments when you need them. Let us take the guesswork out of your fitness and nutrition. Visit www.hardbatathletics.com to chat with a coach today.